you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose and being able to preach this morning uh, from the truth of God's Word and and we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And in today's text, what we're going to see are the disciples and, and followers of Jesus experiencing fear in a couple of different ways. But the most obvious fear they will experience is the fear of death. And this will probably not surprise you, but humans have always been afraid of death. And that's a natural thing. It's a natural thing to fear death because death is the ultimate foe, right? It, it, it shows up at times unexpected. It takes whoever it chooses. And on the other side of death is that which can't be fully understood. And, and this is true regardless of your worldview or your religious stances. On the other side of death, whether you believe in heaven and hell or reincarnation or purgatory or even if you believe that nothing happens after you die, all of these are shrouded in, in mystery, and they're a bit frightening for us to, to think about. But, but death is unavoidable. It's unknowable. And preceding death is something that we fear almost, if not more, than death itself, because what directly precedes death is often very uncomfortable. There is fear and pain and suffering and anxiety. And so whether we go by being crushed by a weight or drowning in the sea or being slowly taken by illness, most of the ways in which people die are unpleasant to say the least. And, and death is always lonely. It's undignified. It's the most powerful humiliation of the human will, and so we fear it. And we live in a society that, that I would wager more than any other society or culture in the history of the world, our society, Western modern society, is more obsessed with and more afraid of death than anyone else ever. And I think this is primarily because of the irreligious nature of our society. Because most religions, regardless of how false and unhelpful they might be at large, they provide to their faithful some consolation in the face of death. There is some hope of something better on the other side or justice being done for wrongdoing on the other side, suffering being alleviated or, or rest finally coming to fruition. But in a society like ours where our public religion is the secularized worship of science and a haphazardly constructed pseudo-moral ethic that is put together like paper mache and it falls apart at every turn, there is absolutely no answer for death. Other than this one, run from it as fast as you can for as long as you can. And so we're obsessed with prolonging life and avoiding death at all costs. There's a philosopher named Matthew Crawford, and he, and he has coined this phrase, safetyism, the religion of the modern Westerner. 
And it infiltrates our society in any number of ways. We're taught to trust and pursue any and every medical treatment at all times. And the most righteous ones among us in this public religion will be pious in our devotion to diet and strenuous exercise and self-care, whatever that means, and, and psychotherapy and all of these things which are ultimately attempts to foil death for maybe a year longer, or by reason of strength and luck, a decade. We're taught to fear cancer and car rides on the crowded highway more than we're taught to fear much greater evils like our own sin or Satan and all of his demons. And even when I lay out this way that we approach death as a society with such a disparaging attitude, it does seem logical, right? What is there to fear more than death? It, after all, according to an even very passing examination, is the only force which has seemingly overcome every person to ever walk the earth. But this morning, I think what the Scriptures are going to show us is that there is something even more fear-inducing than death. So let's pray, and then let's see what the Word has to say. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for Your Spirit who illuminates the, the truth of Your Word, the beauty of Your Son, the power of Your glory, so that we might be transformed to be more like you and be more like the men and women and children you've created us to be. And so I ask this morning as we look at your word that you would put our hearts and our minds in exactly the right posture to receive you. And that you would use my tongue as flawed as it is to proclaim your excellence and your glory and your grandeur to the fullness of your beauty so that we might be changed by it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today's text, we're in Mark chapter 4, and we arrive here after Jesus has completed an extensive teaching. And all of this teaching has been in parables, which is what we talked about last week. And so Jesus is teaching in public in these parables, these metaphors, usually using kind of agrarian language, and then he's going into inner rooms with his closest disciples and explaining the meaning to them, and he's showing them the depths and the purposes of his kingdom, what he's come to establish, and he's been healing people, and he's been gaining all sorts of followers who are interested in his ministry, and, and then... And then in today's text, he, he does something interesting. He decides to, to go across the sea to another people. And now, now to, to kind of get a picture of this, Jesus throughout Mark so far has done the work of a prophet, right? He's been preaching the word of God to the people of God. And he's done the work of a priest where he's been mediating and, and explaining the work of God to the disciples of God. And he's also been a, a humble teacher, Spending his time with people, giving himself to people. He's been laying this foundation for a kingdom and a movement that continues to this day in this very room. And in today's text, what we see is we go and see him from going to prophet and priest 
to doing something that a king does. He decides to get in a boat and go across the sea to visit more subjects. But the people that he's going to visit are not just any people. Across the Sea of Galilee is the country of the Gerasenes. Now, the Gerasenes are a Hellenistic Jewish people, which means they're Jewish ethnically, but they have conformed culturally and in their language and likely religiously to the pagan practices of the Roman oppressors. And so these are people that the disciples probably weren't big fans of, right? These are traitors to the Jewish way of life. These are people that, that deserve to be ignored by someone like Jesus. But Jesus decides to get in a boat at night to go across the sea to visit these people. It says, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Going across in the sea. And now, when we see the sea in the Bible, there's a lot of symbolism wrapped up in the sea, but maybe most obviously the sea is symbolic of everything that is chaotic and powerful over the human will. The sea is frightening. It represents sin and chaos and often the judgment and discipline of God. And, and so they're, they're going across the sea to this chaotic culture of these Hellenized Jews in the Gerasenes. And this embarkment on this mission is not dissimilar from the mission that Jonah was given, if you recall the prophet from the Old Testament, Jonah. Most of you, even if you're not familiar with the Bible are aware of Jonah because he spent three days in the belly of a fish. But, but Jonah's mission was to go across the sea to the land of Nineveh, to preach the good news of God's grace and repentance to the people of Nineveh who were a people who were very far from the will of God. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with these people. And so he ran from God and, and he ran directly to a boat and he said, can I hop on, right? He was like this this uh, seafaring hitchhiker. He said, can I hop on? Just take me anywhere but Nineveh. And then they're out in the sea. And something happens to the boat that Jonah's on. And, and this is where the story once again will collide with what's going on in Mark 4, verses 37 and 38 say, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was already filling. But he, being Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And so in the story of Jonah, they, they go out to sea and, and the boat is in danger, right? A huge storm comes. They think the, sh the ship's going to sink. They're taking on water. They're throwing everything they can overboard. And finally, they find this guy that they had given a ride to, this wayward prophet, and he's asleep below the deck in the stern of the boat. And, and they don't understand why he's asleep, but they got to ask him what's going on. And Jonah says, yeah, this is my fault. Right, like I'm sure that this is my fault. God is angry with me because I disobeyed him. And so if you throw me into the water, you'll probably be safe. The storm will probably subside. Jonah says, sacrifice me and you'll live. Here in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are in a similar situation as those sailors were in Jonah. They're in a boat that is seemingly headed for the bottom of the sea. They're taking on water. The storm is too great. They're terrified for their lives. And the guy who told them to get in the boat at night to go to a place they wanted nothing to do with is sleeping in the stern. They're horrified. 
They're going to die, they think. And they're going to die because they're on a boat they probably didn't want to get onto to go visit a people they probably wanted nothing to do with. But the guy who convinced them to go is asleep below the deck. And so this is what they say in verse 38, and I think this is one of the most haunting verses in the Gospels of people talking to Jesus. They say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? This, I think, is the climax of the text. Jesus sleeping while the disciples are fending for their lives. And so they ask him if he even cares. Do you even care what's going on? Do you care that we're taking on water? And some of you, I know, are judging the disciples right now. How could they ask Jesus if he cares? Of course he cares. He's Jesus. Haven't you read anything? Don't you know this guy cares? He's Jesus. Well, let me ask you this. If you're on a boat because a man that you trusted as your leader decided it was a good idea to get on this boat and it's dark and you're going somewhere you don't want to go and a storm hits and the boat's beginning to sink and that guy's sleeping, wouldn't you wonder if he cared about you? Like you, you would wonder, this is a reasonable thing that they ask, don't you care? You would question this person's care for you. Your life is in danger and he got you into this mess. But some of you are not judging the disciples because you know exactly what they're experiencing. You've been there. You've asked the same question of God. Maybe you've asked it this week. Maybe something is going on in your life that's so hard, so full of suffering, so full of fear that you're, you've been crying out, God, don't you care? Don't you see what I'm going through? Maybe you had a relationship that went wrong that you had put a lot of hope in. Maybe you got an unexpected diagnosis that's particularly frightening. Maybe you, you lost a family member. Maybe you've experienced a prolonged season of suffering or abuse or mistreatment or confusion that, that has led you to wonder, does God care about me? You understand this question. And I'm not bringing this up to pour salt in a wound, but but rather to comfort you and say, you're not alone, right? The disciples asked the same question. If you read the Psalms, David seemingly asked this question every week to God. He asked God, do you care? Don't you see what I'm going through? So the question becomes, not is it okay to ask if God cares, but what does it mean when we're faced with these sorts of circumstances in our lives that seem so dire, so horrible, and it feels like God is absent or He's aloof or he's unconcerned. It feels like God's asleep at the wheel while everything around us is going wrong. Does it mean that God doesn't care about you? Like you've honestly wondered it. Does it mean that? Does God not care? Are you too insignificant for God to care? I think that would get answered in verse 39. The disciples asked, do you not care that we're perishing? And it says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Church, he cares. He cares. He unequivocally cares. The disciples are scared and they're suffering, and Christ was not unaware. 
He heard their question. He heard their frustration. He heard the fear and trembling in their voice, and he cared. But we have to ask ourselves, if he has the power to calm the storm, didn't he start it in the first place? Right? Like, if if God has the power to command the storm to stop, who else has the power to tell it to start? He, He started the storm. He got them into this mess. Not only did he say, let's get on this boat and go out in the dark, but he's the one who told the seas to rage. Does he not care? Is this not loving? Is this cruel? Church, nothing happens in this world. Nothing happens in your life apart from the attentive care and masterful will of God. Nothing And so the suffering that we experience in our lives is not a sign that God is absent. In fact, maybe more uncomfortable for us to grapple with, it's a sign that God is radically present. Suffering, the Bible tells us, however, is not all bad. Suffering produces in us the exact sort of character that we most desire to have, that God most wants for us. And we become more like God and more close to His Son when we suffer because God's plan for the world and the ministry of His Son was primarily surrounded by redeeming things through suffering. Through suffering. And so a stormy sea in our life may be wildly unpleasant and uncomfortable and frightening, but it's not a sign that God is absent. In fact, it might be God's mercy in your life pointing you to call out to Him, do you care? So that He can show you how much He cares. It might be God's mercy in your life letting you understand the suffering that Christ has experienced so that you can be free, so that you have at least some tangible way of knowing what that was like, so you can understand the mercy of God, the love of God more deeply. But I I will say this. All of the suffering in our life, it would be too simplistic to say, like, oh, it's just God's fault, right? Like, that's a a very simplistic way of understanding suffering. Suffering is often a lot more complex than being on a boat in stormy seas, right? Like, as scary as that is, it's simple. But a lot of times, the suffering in our life is caused by a lot of elements. Not absent from the will of God, but not totally the working of God. Sometimes our own sin leads us to experience suffering. The consequences of our choices or our thoughts or the ways that we've treated people lead us to experience suffering. Sometimes other people's sin causes us to suffer, right? And a lot of times we don't want to admit that, but that's just true. Like sometimes people sin against us and it causes us great harm and we suffer, And sometimes, this is the thing that I think we're most likely to avoid considering in our context and maybe in this congregation in particular, sometimes there are spiritual elements and persons at play in our suffering, i.e. Satan and his demons, that we don't want to grapple with. Even though Paul tells us that the war we wage is not one with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And so suffering is complex, But none of it is away from the hand and the power and the will of God. He he is either orchestrating it or allowing it, but he's never absent from it. 
And he always has a desire in the midst of it for us, like the disciples, to go to him needy and call upon him for help. So does Jesus care? He cares deeply. He cares deeply about his disciples. He gives them the relief that they were looking for. He saves them from death. He eased their worry about the suffering they were experiencing. The seas went from raging to being totally still. That's amazing. Then Jesus asked them two questions. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is something we could dwell on for a lot longer, but but for now, I, I think what we need to understand is that Jesus is asking his disciples, if, if after all they've seen from him thus far, if after all they've experienced from him thus far, if after they've built this relationship with him, do they still not get it that he cares? Like, don't you know I care? And don't you know that if you're with me, you don't have to be afraid of things that I created and can tell what to do? But it's easy to read this, and it's often easy to read Jesus in the Gospels as being like really harsh or dismissive, right? Like we can read this and maybe get the assumption that Jesus like was like, why'd you wake me up from this nap? Why are you afraid? Like, don't you get it? Like, why are you so foolish? But I don't think that's the tone of his voice at all here. I, I think this is a kind and patient question. The sort of question a loving father would ask his child after his child has come to him a hundred times for help, maybe because he's scared in the middle of the night, and, and after the hundredth time of the father taking the child back to bed, kissing him on the forehead, saying, don't you know that like, daddy's sleeping in the other room and you're safe when he's here? Like, Don't you know that I'm always going to get up when you need me? Don't you know that, that I love you, that I care for you, and that... that that I'm not going to allow harm to come to you. Jesus, in these questions, he's asking the disciples to reflect upon, like, haven't you seen me to be trustworthy and kind and loving? Don't you know that I have your best interests at heart? But he also is patient knowing that in their desperation, these are things that we're quick to forget. We're quick to forget the care and love and character of God. All of us are, not just the disciples in Mark chapter 4. But in this question, Jesus is implicitly telling them, I will never forsake you. I will always care for you. You don't have to be afraid if I'm on the boat with you. And yet, right after this, he's calmed the storm, he's asked them this question, and then it says, and they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who is this then, that even the wind and the seas obey him? I love this. The disciples go immediately from being terrified of the storm and of dying to being terrified of Jesus. Right? There's nothing to be afraid of anymore in terms of their danger. Right? The storm's gone. This, the ship is fine. They're headed for harbor, and yet they're more afraid than they were when they were bailing water off the boat. And, and if we kept reading in Mark, immediately after this, when they get to the country of the Gerasenes, the disciples and Jesus are approached by this demon-possessed man, and he's been wreaking havoc on the Gerasenes. 
They can't bind him down with chains. He's been breaking pottery over his head. Like he's the most scary version of a person that you could ever imagine. And, and Jesus heals him. Like he casts the demons out and he gives the garrisons relief from this terror. And, and how do they respond? They don't say, wow, this Jesus is amazing. We're really thankful for him. No, they're so afraid that Jesus can cast out the demons of this man that they say, why don't you just go back to Galilee? Like, this is two times in a row where Jesus is proving he's more powerful than the thing that people feared the most so that they end up fearing him more. This is important. Now, the disciples' fear is a healthy fear. It's a godly fear. It's the kind of fear that we're called to have for God. The Gerasenes fear is the kind of fear that I think some of you are probably familiar with. The Gerasenes saw the power of Jesus and knew if we let this guy stay in our country, everything's going to have to change. Our culture is going to have to change. Our behavior is going to have to change. Our allegiance is going to have to change. And I'm not ready for that to change. So maybe he should just go back where he came from and we'll deal with the demon-possessed man. Because the fear we know and the dangers we know seem a lot better than the change that's going to have to come if this guy takes up residence. Some of you have yet to take a step of faith because you've seen Jesus clearly enough that you know that trusting him is going to change everything about your life, and you are more comfortable with the problems you've got than the change that's going to have to come if you trust in Jesus. But what's clear either way is that there's something more scary than death. There's something more terrifying than death. That's the one who has power over it. See, when the power of Satan and death seem to be the most terrifying things, realizing that there's one more powerful is obviously terrifying. And as modern Christians, we have a really bad relationship with the idea of the fear of God. But the disciples weren't wrong to see Jesus calm the storm and become afraid. God is terrifying. God's terrifying for a lot of reasons, but mainly because he is the voice that even those things that you think are most terrifying, that they obey his voice. He created all of the things you can't understand, but that scare you. Whether it's cosmic realities like black holes, God created them. Whether it's things lurking like great white sharks or, or rattlesnakes when you're hiking or, or whatever. Maybe it's hurricanes or, or, or whatever it is. God created it. He tells them what to do. God's the one who shuts the mouths of lions, but also to whom the lions look for to feed them. He has power over death. He's the one who cursed humans to die in the first place. He's the one that Psalms say that numbers are days. He decides when our life begins and when it ends. And he decides what happens after that because he's also the Lord over what happens after we die. He's the judge of all the universe. And so if you read the Bible and see who God is, you will become afraid. And if you don't, I don't think you're reading the Bible honestly. But this isn't bad. God being frightful isn't bad. In fact, I would argue that it's really good that God is a God that we can be afraid of because we want a strong God. 
Amen? Like, we want a strong God who's mysterious and powerful and awesome. We want the kind of God that the beasts look for food, that the seas ask permission from. Why? Because this is the kind of God who can save. A a less frightening God would be a more impotent God, and we want nothing to do with that kind of God because He can't change anything. He can't save us, but a God who tells the storm to stop, that's a God who can save. We want a God like this because the seas of our lives are often so tumultuous, right? We want a God who we can reasonably go to and that he can make it better, that he can say, peace, be still. We want a God who can conquer all of the things that plague us, even death. Because a God whom we don't reasonably fear is just not a God worth worshiping. But, but we're not called to fear God like a tyrant or a wild animal. We're called to fear God with reverence, knowing that He's not an erratic God who's going to crush us or smite us at any moment or on any whim. No, because while God is worthy of fear, He proves Himself from Genesis to Revelation to be kind, to be loving, to be trustworthy, to be fatherly. The disciples were saved in Mark chapter 4 because they had a terrifying God on their boat. And if you're walking in faith with Christ today, then you have a terrifying God on your boat, which means whatever seas you embark on, you have one more powerful. No matter how frightening your circumstances may be, your circumstances are a lot more frightened of the God who's in your boat. So you can cry out to Him. You can call out to Him. You can even be so audacious to say, do you not care that I'm dying here? And when you do that, He will rouse. And He will begin to make peace. Now, that doesn't mean that, like in Mark 4, the seas are just going to immediately stop raging. But even when the boat is rocky and you're taking on water, he'll be at your side, and you know that your circumstances won't win. You know that you won't be abandoned. And when you have the God of the universe in your boat, you will never be outgunned. There's nothing that's going to come your way. There's nothing that's going to come the church's way that will overcome us if we are abiding in the one who tells the seas where to stop. But the raging seas in in Mark chapter 4, they don't just represent this idea of like these temporary storms and experiences of suffering that we have in our lives, but they also represent the judgment of God, the power of sin and death, the influence of Satan. They represent all those eternal enemies that we don't have the ability to overcome on our own. I'm convinced that Mark wants us to be thinking about Jonah when we read this account. Because the storm was raging in Jonah because of sin, because of Jonah's sin. And Jonah had to get cast into the sea to atone for it, to save the others from his sin, from the consequences of his sin. And yet, the storm wasn't raging in Mark 4 because of Jesus' sin, but it was because of the sin of the Gerasenes, 
It was because of the sin of the disciples. It was because of the sin of the followers of Jesus. But Jesus didn't throw them overboard. No, in fact, the ministry of Jesus ends up being so much like the ministry of Jonah that when the Pharisees ask for signs in the Gospel of John, Jesus says the only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah. Like, Jesus says, I'm the truer and better Jonah. Jonah threw himself into the sea so that the people on the boat could be saved, and God preserved him below for three days in the deep, in the belly of a fish. But I'm going to be thrown into death. And I'm not going to be preserved in the belly of a fish. I'm going to actually die. I'm going to actually experience the torment of God's wrath. I'm going to experience the fullness of destruction of the raging seas that are raging because of your sin, and I will suffer for it so that your seas can be peaceful for eternity. But like Jonah, he was only below for three days. Three days later, he came out. He came out, and when Jonah came out, he went to Nineveh and told the Ninevites to repent and believe, and they did. It was like nobody thought that would happen, but they did, and God showed mercy on them. And so with the resurrection of Jesus, there's proof that there is something more terrifying than death, the God of life, but there's also one who has power over it, his son, Jesus Christ. And that for those who trust in him, death no longer is the ultimate obstacle. Rather, Paul talks about it as an entryway to be ushered in, right? He's longing for it because of what's coming after. So if if you put your hope in Christ, you can have confidence even in the face of death. Even in the midst of illness and suffering, you can have confidence. Because he is in the boat with you and he will see you to the other shore. But there is also something else to consider, which is for those who refuse in the midst of the stormy seas to call out to Christ. The prospect of death and and all of its terror will continue to rage in your life. You will continue to not have an answer for those fears. And on the other side of death, you will be met with something even more terrifying than death the one who is more powerful than you, the judge of all the earth, the God of all things. So this morning, I urge you to hope in Christ, to walk with him daily. And and if you do that, I'm warning you, he's going to do with you what he did with his disciples. He's going to ask you to step into storm-tossed waters in the darkness of night but he'll go with you. He's going to take you to places that you never intended on going, but he'll go with you. He's going to call you to love and extend grace and mercy to people that you never would have chosen to do that beforehand, but he'll go with you. And his love for you will be sure every step of the way. His care for you will be proven time and time again. And so this morning, my biggest fear is not death. My biggest fear for me and for you is that we would miss out on the life, both present and eternal, that God has for us in relationship with His Son. And so this morning, let us pray 
and come feast at his table, be nourished by his life, be united to him more deeply. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you this morning that there is an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem that proclaims that we don't have to fear death. Like the Apostle Paul, we can mock it saying, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Pray that you would stir up in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies the, the level of faith required to proclaim those sorts of things honestly. I pray this morning that you would come by your Spirit and comfort those of us in the room who are in deep need of your comfort. Remind us of your care for us. Take our hand and, and show us the peace that you can provide. I pray this morning that if there's a, a man or a woman or a child in the room who's yet to fully surrender over their life to you, Lord, that they would see you as beautiful and loving and powerful and worthy of worship and terrifying and good and, and all of those things and that they would trust you regardless of where you might lead them because to go with you it doesn't matter where we're going if you're with us Father I pray that you would give us hope give us peace and give us life that can only come through your son we thank you for the ministry of Jesus by whom we have forgiveness of sins and life everlasting 